This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Julian Morrow. Welcome to The Roundtable. Well, it's December, Christmas is exactly a week away. Pretty well everyone, I think, needs a break. But for many, it's more than that. Burnout is a word that many of us would use to describe the last few years. But how do we really know if we're burnt out or just in need of a break? And how can we help ourselves recover? The World Health Organisation recognises burnout as an occupational phenomenon as opposed to a medical condition. The WHO defines burnout as a syndrome resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. Burnout's characterised by feelings of exhaustion, mental distance from one's job and reduced professional capacity. So how common is burnout, especially after the profound stresses of the COVID-19 pandemic? How do you spot burnout? What should you do if you're experiencing burnout? And just as importantly, what can individuals and organisations do to prevent burnout? Um, Scientia Professor Gordon Parker is the head of school of the School of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales, uh, founder of the Black Dog Institute and the author of Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery. The perfect person to have on this roundtable about burnout. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you very much, Julian. Great to have you. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. John Wilson, um, who's an adjunct clinical professor at Monash University, former president of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. And uh, Professor Wilson was a senior doctor at the Alfred Hospital, Melbourne's major trauma centre. Uh, but he quit in May last year, publicly raising concerns about conditions in the state's healthcare system, calling them untenable and deteriorating, saying staff were being pushed to a breaking point. Dr. John Wilson, welcome to you. Good morning, Julian. Great to have you too. And we're also joined by a third guest who's experiencing burnout right now. We're just going to call her Rosie. Uh, she's been a teacher for over 10 years and in the last few weeks has made the decision not to work next year. Thanks very much for joining us on the roundtable too, Rosie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, if I could start with you, um, Professor Gordon Parker, could we just talk about the definition of burnout? Uh, I mentioned how the World Health Organization describes it. Uh, does that definition match with the definition of burnout in your book? No, it doesn't. Um, and there are three differing issues for consideration. Um, you've given the, what I would call a triadic model, the World Health Organization one, with three symptoms. Um, and that's been a model that has dominated burnout research since the early 1980s. Um, there is a measure called the Maslick Burnout Inventory that has those three, quotes, symptoms. Um, and that measure has been used in over 80% of published papers um, since then. So our research... Um, challenges it in three differing ways. Firstly, a broader definition of burnout. Yes, a big tick to exhaustion, that is the key feature. Secondly, um, the second construct has been variably described as loss of empathy, compassion, fatigue, um, but loss of empathy has been the key focus. Mm. What we would argue is it's more a lack of feeling tone so that people just don't get a buzz out of much at all, mm. not necessarily losing empathy. And I think there's a real risk to 
preserving that uh, descriptor because it suggests that people become uncaring and become callous. It's mm. not quite like that. The third component, loss of um, work efficacy, isn't necessarily a symptom. That could be a consequence. So we've broadened the definition to include a couple more constructs. The most important one is cognitive impairment. And if you go back to the ancient descriptions of burnout, and it was one of the um, eight original deadly sins called achedia. In the 5th century AD, there was an epidemic amongst monks in Egypt. And the monastics would wake up one day and say, the sky is no longer blue, the sun isn't out. I, I get no pleasure out of this job. But they also describe cognitive impairment. And that's what we've found, and a couple of other researchers in the area have also found, that people with burnout just say they can't take things in as readily as possible. Uh, they can't remember things uh, even when they take them in. Then they become socially withdrawn. So they're the key constructs. But along with that, most people have a level of anxiety. Um, depression is very common as a concomitant. And then there are other symptoms like insomnia. So despite people feeling exhausted, they'll mm. generally describe they can't sleep. After that can come a whole series of physical problems because people's immunological capacity is, is reduced. So Arianna Huffington of Huffington Post, when she developed burnout, she just fell to the ground hitting her head on a table. Um, in our book, we have a professional woman who could not get out of bed when she was admitted to hospital. She had virtually no blood pressure and so on and so forth. So we, we, we would argue for a broader set of symptoms, if you like. Secondly, burnout has generally been viewed as affecting only those in the workplace. What we've found is uh, people in demanding home situations, maybe looking after children, homeschooling, <laughs> looking after elderly, frail parents, or the so-called yeah, sandwich generation. Yeah, that, that, that would that, very much happen right? in those contexts as well. Doing both. They get exactly the same uh, profile when they get burnout, and burnout is not uncommon. And the third component we challenge is that it's generally been seen as a simple equation. Work stress generates burnout and that the individual brings nothing to the table. Our research shows that, in fact, personality is quite important in that burnout is overrepresented in dutiful, reliable, caring people. And, in fact, that's part of its tragedy, that mm. burnout is overrepresented in, in good people. And that's why it's overrepresented, as you might imagine, uh, in health professionals, in teachers, particularly in the clergy and others in the helping profession. So our model is a broader one. Very interesting. Uh, Rosie, does what uh, Professor Parker's just said about uh, the, the narrower and the broader definition of burnout resonate with your experiences? Oh, he took the words right out of my mouth. Absolutely exceptional. Um, I'm just recovering from surgery as well, so please excuse my um, pronunciation of words. No worries but at all. Just what you said, especially hitting home about it's not just my fault, it's my personality of being a caring person. Um, <clears throat> it's not just a work stressor, it's not a headache for the weekend. It's that total apathetic feeling, the detachment, um, and it's an all-round thing that I've felt that hasn't gone away. So I think it's absolutely spot on well done. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Gordon, uh, what's the difference between something being an occupational phenomenon, although I know you, you're you saying it's, it's not just about occupations, mm. and a medical condition? Um, and I wonder if you could also tell us maybe about the distinction between something like fatigue and burnout. Mm. Well, there are some people who've said that as the dominant feature is exhaustion and other things are marginal, therefore burnout can be equated with exhaustion. And there are some measures of burnout that just simply have an exhaustion scale. But if burnout is a synonym for exhaustion, then in fact there's no need to have the term burnout. Mm, mm. So that's why it's important to have a broader definition to capture the symptoms that people actually actually describe. Um, so I think that's the key first answer. Mm. The second question... Uh, well, that, that, that's the difference between fatigue and, and burnout, but what's the difference between like an occupational right. uh, phenomenon and a medical condition? Uh, I think the ICD via the World Health Organisation, when they brought in that positioning, was trying to play safe uh, because there's been a big debate in the last couple of decades. Should we put burnout in as a psychiatric condition or as a medical condition? And there is an argument against it, uh, and therefore I felt they were playing safe just mm. to position it like that. Although, interestingly, when they did release the document, most newspapers' front page had ICD now lists uh, burnout as a psychiatric condition, which actually wasn't true. Right, so they, yeah, <laughs> they didn't get the memo. <laughs> so we, we have argued that, in fact, if most... Um, manuals of psychiatric conditions have an acute stress disorder and chronic stress disorder, then why not include burnout as long as we define burnout with some rigour that we don't bring in just simply exhaustion? Uh, and we published a paper on that very issue recently. So the debate is still going on. There is a slight argument in favour of keeping it where it is because while people may be still reluctant to talk about being depressed to some degree, even though I think in Australia we've destigmatized depression than any other country, people are much more comfortable right. talking about burnout because they see it as a normative experience. Mm. And if you look at the prevalence figures, um, look, if we just take um, medical practitioners, for instance, it is said that over their lifetime of practising, 60% of doctors will have burnout at some stage and at any one stage, 30% will have burnout. Now, I suspect those figures are slightly high, but if we accept them for the moment, that would be an argument for keeping burnout as a more normative phenomenon rather than putting it in as a psychiatric condition. That's, that, that's really interesting. Uh, Dr John Wilson, uh, how do those figures sound to you after your extensive experience in the, uh, the medical profession? Well, Julian, I've got to say that um, I think um, it was... Uh, interesting to hear the figures that Gordon was uh, quoting about medical practitioners. And, of course, these figures come from different surveys. The one that uh, the College of Physicians undertook a year ago uh, indicated that 87% of members who answered the survey had concerns about burnout. Now, that doesn't mean that they have the problem, mm. but they've heard about it. They understand what the features of the condition are and they have their own concerns about where they're headed with their lives. So I would think it, those figures are actually pretty close to the truth, uh, if not slightly underbaked. 
Well, you could certainly understand if um, increased rates of burnout uh, had occurred after what's happened in the pandemic over the last few years as well. well John, John, could you talk to us a little bit about uh, d- just the detail of what you saw happening on the ground and why that led you uh, to the decision to leave your job? Yes, thanks, Julian. Look, um, I think that it's important we haven't really addressed the whole situation around COVID in this discussion so mm. far. And I think that's something that's uh, been very important. And why are we talking about burnout today? Because we've gone through three years of this pandemic at a time when we thought, well, this is another episode of influenza and in a year it'll be gone. No, it is not gone. Uh, the, The global pandemic of influenza in 1918 lasted four years. Now, we're coming up to the fourth year uh, and people have just about, have had enough. Now, you were asking me about my personal journey. Well, that's an interesting point because inherent in the issue around exhaustion, tiredness, uh, is personal resilience. And whether or not a person has resilience and can put up with conditions um, uh, it depends on many, many factors. Of course, what are those conditions you're talking about that lead to uh, exhaustion, that lead to the, the, the burnout condition that we've been talking about this morning? Uh, and and it, in many places, uh, in, including the ICD-11 definition, it does actually refer to stress that has not been successfully managed. Now, where does that put the responsibility? There is an industrial component to this discussion, and it does mean that employers who do have responsibility for welfare of employees, whether they have a medical disease or not, if it's acquired in the workplace and the employees are unhappy, employers have a responsibility to address that. Mm. And worldwide, there's been a major discussion going on about how have employers actually addressed the issue. And so far, it's been totally inadequate. Yes, I think, you know, by definition, successful management would have both individual and organisational aspects. And obviously, uh, the, the stresses on the health system caused by COVID have been huge. And obviously, on the education system as well, Rosie, um, uh, could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about um, how you feel burnout has sort of uh, unfurled in your life and how much you think that, that COVID was a, a part of that? COVID was absolutely huge. Um, I think the main issue is we don't have negotiations as an entire country. Everything is decided school to school. So, for example, this year I had COVID in May um, just as we had collected all of our reporting data. Um, We were expected to complete reports while unwell and have them without an elongated deadline, ready to go for the parents and students um, to provide an example and a snapshot of where they're at. Um, and our cognitive overload was huge. We we actually couldn't even meet the mark of what we wanted with the quality of what we were providing. That was just this year. The years prior, we had um, remote teaching teaching in the classroom. We had half the class at school, half the class at home, so we were doing double lesson plans. We were dropping off work packages to homes. We had WhatsApp groups. It was just parents coming from 
all corners, they were very stressed about homeschooling. So they do project a lot of that stress um, onto us naturally. So the impact of COVID on teaching and workload has been absolutely huge. Mm. Then you've got the student wellbeing on top of that. So I had eight-year-olds wearing masks this year, um, which for them is extremely difficult. They, you know, it's heightened their anxiety. They catastrophize things. So that also, it's a silent thing, but it increases the workload as well. Mm. Um, and, and that's just a tiny snapshot. Absolutely. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. On the roundtable, we are uh, discussing burnout at the end of the year uh, with Rosie, who's a, a teacher who, as we heard, has experienced in- incredible stresses and 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 um, has made the decision not to return to work next year. Um, we're also joined by Dr. John Wilson, former president of the uh, Royal Aust- Australasian College of Physicians, uh, who resigned as a senior doctor at the uh, the Alfred Hospital last year and raised concerns about uh, the stresses that uh, the healthcare systems been placed under and uh, Scientia Professor Gordon Parker who's the author of Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery. Gordon, I wonder if uh, we could pick up that last part of your book title, The Pathways to Recovery, and maybe explore those dual aspects of the individual pathways but then also some of the Mm organisational aspects that John was uh, alluding to as well. Right. So if we start at what the individual might care to consider, Mm. um, a few responses. Firstly, we did a very large study of over 1,200 people and we asked them what was the most effective strategies that they had employed. Number one was talking to other people. So I think being able to get it out and presumably getting some support back uh, was highly important. After that came exercise And generally strenuous exercise um, was the key nominee. Uh, Thirdly, uh, mindfulness meditation. So of all the anxiety-reducing strategies that we could think of, relaxation, yoga, whatever, mindfulness meditation came out. Um, So they were the three top-of-the-pops nominations. Uh, What we do in the book is we suggest a longitudinal model, if you like, firstly, to identify the cause of the burnout. And so we've got an appendix that lists um, the wide set of causes that can lead to burnout. And they're not just ones of, um, you know, demanding, harassing boss or incredibly long hours. They are also factors like uh, you have conflict with the roles that you're positioned in or uh, the actual moral value of your company. So first of all, to check through that appendix and see which ones are salient to you Mm. and therefore need addressing. The second component is obviously de-stressing strategies. And we run through those. And again, meditation, mindfulness comes out as as very strong. Um, Third aspect is to address that other component that I noted earlier is really conceded, and that is the personality style of the individual. So that component that is particularly relevant is the domain of perfectionism being highly dutiful. And so we've got a couple of chapters in the book about what to do if you are perfectionistic. And that's one of the most difficult things I find when I'm trying to assist a patient with burnout. Um, I may make a whole series of recommendations, but they're so dutiful 
They just don't want to give up doing what they're doing. They don't want to reduce their hours. They want to get in early. They want to stay late because things might go wrong if they don't do it. So addressing that personality style is all important. So they're the components that I would nominate for the individual. For the organisation, of course, it's important for them to recognise and build in preemptive strategies to reduce the chance of burnout. Um, and then secondly, to have strategies in place when people are burning out. Um, now, in America, that's widely conceded. And so uh, people know, running big corporations, that burnout actually costs them a lot of money. They have problems of absenteeism, workers not turning up, of presenteeism, where people turn up but they actually don't fire up. And thirdly, just walking away from the job. So there are many companies now in America that will come in and apply a whole series of strategies. We haven't seen that take off quite as much in Australia, but I suspect it will. Mm. We'll, see, we'll see a growth. So um, it's really important that the organisations concede that issue. That sounds fine um, up to a point. Uh, I often get a scenario where uh, the employee who has the burnout is in an organisation that is downsizing and they're actually looking for victims, people who have any weakness with depression or burnout. And that's horrendous because mm. they just get further pressure piled on them. So for me to say um, organisations need to change their values is, is very easy, but in fact uh, not always quite so easy in effect. Mm. Uh, and there's a certain sort of grim irony, John Wilson, to the fact that the caring professions are the places where these problems uh, occur at, with particular intensity. Well, what are your thoughts hearing um, Gordon Parker's views on the, or, or, or sort of uh, recommendations on individual and then organisational uh, responses? How does that line up with what you saw uh, on the ground at the Alfred Hospital oh. and presumably elsewhere? Well, uh, I won't speak specifically about the Alfred Hospital, but um, I have a view across many hospitals in Australia. And, uh, and, and one situation just comes to mind when uh, um, uh, in one particular hospital I was asked to see a patient in an emergency department and I walked in with my uh, full PPE on and the very first thing that happened was a senior nurse shouted at me for not having my mask tied up the correct way. And my, my first thought was how terrible it is that um, that nurse was doing her level best to protect her staff, the patients who were there, to stick to the rules, but couldn't think about the objective of treating the patient first. So we'd lost our way. And that really, to me, was a, a signal event. But going to the bigger picture of what can be done, uh, I agree with uh, Gordon in his view that organisations need to take some responsibility and we haven't seen much of that here. I came back very recently from uh, a trip to uh, Dublin and I was uh, in a cab going past uh, a bus stop and it had a big sign on it and the sign said... Uh, Come and work in Victoria. Good opportunities. And all I could think of was these people who were stressed and themselves facing burnout were being lured to another war in another site. And I thought, how much could the government be spending on sorting out the problems we have in our own backyard mm. before it's starting to take away healthcare workers from other countries that desperately need them? 
So there are strategies that we can use and think seriously about giving people appropriate leave or adding leave rather than taking it away. And there have been situations where health administrators have actually told people, your leave will be cancelled, don't take any. Mm. So I see that as uh, there are some signal events there and some much can be done without spending a lot of money in our own backyard. Thanks very much, John Wilson. If I could come back to you, uh, Rosie, it was interesting to hear Gordon say before that there's a certain appeal in the term um, burnout, perhaps compared to things like uh, depression or, or, or other descriptors. Um, I know that um, you've only recently started telling people that you're taking uh, next year off. I wonder if you could tell us, uh, has that been difficult to do? Have people been understanding? And, and do you feel that the term itself, burnout, has been useful in having those discussions? Okay, this is a great question. Um, <clears throat> I personally think the people around me are so used to me putting work first and they come second. Um which is a very sad thing. It's not something I'm proud of. I think teaching um, is, there's a misconception, I guess, that it's quite a cruisy job as well. So I, I do hold back on telling people sometimes that that is my career when really it's FIFO, 10 on, 2 off. So <clears throat> I think telling people for me is a pride thing. Um, but I think the most important thing is having those conversations that you feel are the most difficult. Um, the things that are most difficult to speak about are the most valuable to share. I've had so many people that have resonated with what I've shared. They've private messaged me um, and they've, we've connected over that. So I think over the long run, it's been a pebble in the pocket for me, but it's been over the last maybe five years, another pebble, another pebble, another pebble, it hits that breaking point. So I think when you're putting in that effort and you're receiving a positive return, when you're putting in the effort to the point where your returns are diminishing, you're getting a decreased rate of output, you're not having that job satisfaction, you're putting in so much time and effort, <clears throat> I think once you've hit that point the people around you can see that effect that is had on your life. They have really um, supported my decision um, and I feel very confident. I feel very happy and free in a way with my decision. So it's been a tricky thing for my pride to step back but it's also been the most incredible and invigorating thing where I can take a little step back and just say, hey, this isn't working for me, what can I change? Um, and then I can come back and reassess mm. in 12 months and see what's different. Well, good on you, Rosie, and I think I uh, speak for everyone when we say we, all, we wish you all the very best for that and good on you for making the decision. And thanks very much for being part Thank of the roundtable discussion today. The time, uh, as always in these great roundtable conversations, has got away from us, so we're going to have to uh, leave it there. But thanks very much for being part of it and all the best for next year, Rosie. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Uh, and thanks also to you, uh, Dr. John Wilson. 
Thank you, Julian. Uh, that's John Wilson, adjunct clinical professor at Monash University, former president of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians and uh, previously a senior doctor at the Alfred Hospital. And thanks also to you, CETA Professor Gordon Parker. Thank you, Julian. Great having you on. Gordon's the author of Burnout, A Guide to Identifying Burnout and Pathways to Recovery. And that's all we have time for. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Julian Morrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.